Bibles tonight to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. And if you need a Bible tonight, you can just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible so that you can follow along in the study. And I would always encourage you to do that. We do put the words uh, of the, the text up on the screen, but especially as we're going through Deuteronomy, we comment on larger chunks of Scripture. And sometimes I might comment on a verse that passed uh, already, and so you can't look at it. And so, so it's good to always have a Bible with you uh, anyway as we go through the Bible together, but tonight we are in chapter 7. The book of Deuteronomy is a series of three sermons that was delivered by Moses during the past, the last month of his life. And in chapter 7, where we are tonight, we find ourselves towards the early part of Moses' second sermon. The foundation of the second sermon was the Ten Commandments that he repeated in chapter 5 that we looked at. And in chapter 6, he began a series of seven exhortations and warnings concerning the Ten Commandments that he reiterated there in chapter 5. So as we pick up tonight in chapter 7, we continue with Moses' initial comments on the law or on the Ten Commandments. So chapter 7 deals primarily with the conquest that they are about to undergo or undertake in the land of Canaan. They're about to move in to what is called the promised land the land that God promised to Abraham over 400 years before the time that Moses is speaking this word. And they're on the cusp of entering into that destiny, and it's concerning that conquest that Moses is addressing the children of Israel in chapter 7. And we find, as we go through it, that it is also very fitting to your experience in mine as the Lord leads our lives, as he brings us into the promised land, the promises of God. And so chapter 7 and verse 1, we read together, it says, Now when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them, and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, Thy daughter shalt thou not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. Now, from the time that God first called Abraham, he already had it in mind. It was already a part of the plan that he was going to dispossess these seven nations, these seven anti-God groups 
and that he was going to give that land to Israel, his chosen, as their possession. So this is not something that is new. It's not something that God is just thinking up or that Moses is initiating from his own mind. This is something that God has already foreordained that they should inherit. He calls it the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, for you and I, as New Testament followers of Christ, our possession, our inheritance in our relationship with the Lord is not a land physically. God isn't dispossessing people and giving us their possessions, but rather the promised land as it represents the spiritual life that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. It's not physical, but it's spiritual that Paul says that he hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so the promised land for the New Testament believer, not a possession, not something physical, but they are the promises that have been laid out for us in Scripture. And it's a fitting illustration, a fitting example. They would go in and they would take land from their enemies physically, We go in, we take territory spiritually. The promises of God that have been given to us in Scripture, we see them, we recognize what they are, we appropriate them, and then we begin to apply them to our lives, and and one by one, we grow in these things that God has laid out before us, and, and we become mature and stable followers of God, enjoying the blessings of all that He has provided for us. And so there's a fitting parallel between the conquest that they had to do and and also the battle that we fight to appropriate the promises of God and enjoy them within our own lives. Well, what were the rules of the conquest that Moses, that God, through Moses, laid out before the people? Well, first of all, he says that you're to make an utter end of your enemies, There's not to be any compromise. There's no covenant. There's no mercy that you're going to extend to them. But you're going to completely and utterly destroy them. Now again, many people have a problem with this. Is that how could God, a loving God, tell a group of people to exterminate another group of people? Don't forget that this judgment that God meted out upon the Canaanite cultures was extremely measured It was carefully calculated. God waited over 400 years from the time that he first spoke to Moses in order to give these people an opportunity to repent. In fact, when God spoke to Abraham back in Genesis 15, there was only one out of the seven that are mentioned here that God says, I'm not quite ready to judge them yet. God said to Abraham, he said that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, you could take it to say that all of the other groups, at any time, God would say, all the rest of them, they're they're not going to turn back. There's nothing redeemable about them. But the Amorites, I'm going to give them a little bit more time. But he knew that they wouldn't, but he waited until it was Sure, till it was done. And it's now at this time that God says, look, there's nothing left. There's no one among them that's going to give their life to me. They're never going to change. They're not going to turn. And they have become a stain upon the map of humanity. And they need to be taken out so that their influence doesn't spread. 
all you have to do is look in any encyclopedia or you know online and 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 just type in or research the religious practices of the Canaanite cultures. And what you discover is that it was godless and vile. They would literally burn their infants in sacrificial fires. Their worship was so perverse and so uh, sensual that venereal diseases would wipe out whole towns and villages because they'd become so corrupted and so vile. And so God looks in and he says, there's not one person in that whole group that's going to get saved, that's going to give their life to me, and now it's time for their example to be wiped out. And only God can make that decision. A man or a government can never do it, but God can, and God does. And he says, there's not to be any covenant, any mercy. Those are your enemies, and they will, if you allow them to live, they will corrupt you and they will turn you away from following me. You know, the same thing is true concerning our enemies in the spiritual walk. We have three enemies. It's not the culture that's around us. That's not our our enemy. The people that are godless, like the Canaanites were to the Israelites. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That our war is not against people. We have three enemies. Our enemies are the world, that is the system of the world, the affections of the world, the things of the world. One, that's one of our enemies. The second one is the devil, which is our enemy, our adversary, the tempter, the dragon. And then the third one, which is the worst one of all, because you just can't get away from it, is our flesh. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Those are the enemies of the New Testament Christian. And God's word to you and to me in the fight that we have, the struggle that we face, the war that we wage as Christians, the word that God gives to us is that there's not to be any compromise. We're not to show any mercy to our flesh. Your flesh and my flesh, if we give it so much as a saltine cracker, (laughs) it will rise up and it will Something will come to life that, if it is full-grown, will seek to ruin our relationship with God. That's, that's how, how, how severe it is, the enemies that we face as Christians. Just like the Canaanites would corrupt the Israelites and turn them from God, so also, if we compromise with the world, if we compromise with our flesh, if we compromise at the table of our enemy, that compromise will turn into our apostasy we will turn away from the lord and so god says deal with your enemies harshly the second thing that he tells them here is that they're not to mix marry with godless people it's not about race there's nowhere in the bible where god says anything about you know a mixed marriage racially it's not racial but it is religious and the bible is very clear that a believer is not to marry an unbeliever Now, if you are a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, then God calls you to hang on in that relationship and not to leave that person. You know, if they leave you, you're free, the Bible says. But but this is not a thing to say, hey, see, God says I'm not supposed to be married to an unbeliever, so see you later. You know, no, no, that's not the idea. But why does God say that? Because so often I talk to young people and, you know, it could be male or female, but they'll come to me and they'll say, man, but they're so good. They're so charming. They're so beautiful. 
They're so sweet, you know, but they don't know the Lord. And what's the big deal? Why not? Here's why. Because ultimately, you have different life goals. The Bible says that the purpose of all of life is to know God and to bring him glory. It says, for his pleasure, all things are and were created. We exist to bring God glory. And when you're married to a person that shares that same view of life and that same pursuit, then you grow together in that pursuit and you build each other up in that life to to, to seek and to serve the Lord. But when a believer is married to an unbeliever, then the unbeliever will always influence the believer away from the things of the Lord, hinder the spiritual growth that they want to enjoy. And so God says, I would not have you to do that. The other thing that happens when a believer marries a non-believer is that the natural tendency is for the children to follow after the ways of the non-believing side of that marriage. That's what Moses says to them here in verse 4. He says, for they will turn away your son from following me. And that's so often the case when you see that situation, is that the, the, the carnal tendencies that are birthed in every human life will gravitate more towards the unbelieving side. And so the Lord just tells us, don't get yourself into that situation. And if you're in that situation, pray for your spouse, you know, that God would, would win them, that you would be and shine as a light to them. And so he says that they're not to, to intermarry, and then he says that you're to wipe out their influence. He says, destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. Well, why is God being so severe? Why do they have to do this? The answer, as he moves on here in verse 6, the answer is because of who they are. Notice with me. He says, for you are a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. God says the reason for this is because I have called you. I have separated you from every other person, every other people group on the planet, and I've called you unto myself and chosen you to be a special people for me above all other people. Now, that kind of makes you want to puff your chest up a little bit, doesn't it? It kind of makes you want to go, wow, Lord, you looked at me, And you chose me above everyone else on the planet? You separated me unto you to be yours and and I'm different from everyone else? Listen, don't get too puffed up. Because he's about to tell them why he's done that. Why, Lord? Why did you choose me? Why am I chosen to be above, to be separate, to be holy unto you? Why? He answers the question in verse 7. Listen, he says... The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. You say, well, that's a pretty good reason. Well, listen, listen to it again, because if you cut out the little phrase about, you know, them not being the, the most, but being the fewest. It reads like this. He says, the Lord did not set his love upon you because you were da, 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 but he set his love upon you because he loved you. In other words, the Lord loved you because he loved you. 
The reason why God loved you is because he loved you. The reason why he loves you, because he loves you. How many of you, perhaps you're like me, have at one point in your life been tempted to think, well, the Lord saw something in me. He, he, he knows all things. And, and he saw something in me, in my future. He saw a talent. He saw a gift or a quality. He saw an attractiveness, something that perhaps he could employ, something he could use. And maybe I don't even know what it is. Lord, it's okay. I don't ever need to know what it is. But I know, Lord, you know, there's, there's... How many of us have ever thought that even for a moment, even a little bit? Well, listen, let me, let me tell you something. It's not. But you know what? That's the most freeing thing in the whole world. Because if God's love for you or for me was based upon anything that he sees in you or that he sees in me, then that becomes a very heavy burden. Because what it means is that I have to continue to be that thing which he sees in me or continue to do that thing that I'm doing that's making him love me in order for him to keep loving me. But what God has done in loving us just because he loves us and not for any other reason other than that is that he has moved love from the realm of conditional to that of unconditional. That there is no condition upon the love that God has for you and me. He loves us because he loves us. It's not because of anything that we are or ever will be. It's simply that he has chosen in his sovereign goodness and in his love to love us. And that's why God loves you. And that's the most freeing thing in the whole world because it means you never have to measure up to something other than what you are. God loves you, and he loves you because he loves you. Now, the error that Christians make, and I've I've done this, and I do this, is that we think that we can somehow enhance God's love. All right, Lord, well, I know that you love me just because you love me, but now I'm going to do something lovable. And so, like I did early in my Christian life, I made a vow. And I said, Lord, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. every day of my Christian life until you take me to heaven. And I'm going to spend the first hour of my day in your presence. Because, Lord, you're just so good. And I just want to show you how much I love you, Lord. And so I would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and, and I would pray fervently for that hour and read, read the Bible and spend that time with the Lord. And I would keep that up for a couple of days or for a week, and then it would become 5.15, you know, and then 5.22, and then 5.35, and then 9.30 a.m. <laughs> hey, it's Saturday. You know, Lord, you know everybody needs a break, you know? But here's what happened. Here's what happened in that type of relationship where, where I was beginning to carry the load of maintaining God's love for my life is that once I found that I couldn't do the thing that I promised to do, it caused a distance between me and the Lord. Because now I I feel ashamed to pray. Well, I couldn't do what it was that I promised to do. I wasn't strong enough to keep the commitment that I made. And so now who am I to think that I can just come back into the presence of the Lord without tucking my tail or without doing some form of penance, you know, or something to work myself back into his good graces? 
And it becomes a roller coaster experience with the Lord rather than an elevated soar as we just experience God's love day by day for no other reason than the fact that he has provided it through the person of his son and we are accepted in him. He loves us because he loves us. That's freeing. Good stuff. Not only because he loved us, but he goes on to say, he says in verse 8, Uh, He says, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, which uh, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Not only because of the love that he's sovereignly chosen to place upon you, but also because of the promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, And second only to the love of God is the word of God. Is that God will never violate anything that he has ever said or anything that he has ever promised. The Bible says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all things are working together for good for those that love God and those that are called according to his purpose. The Bible says that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ, which we receive and which we experience through his Son. And none of that is ever going to change. God has given it to us. It's a promise that he's made to us, and it's secure. It's for us. And so he loves us with an everlasting, unconditional love, and he has promised us a word that cannot be broken. You say, well, why would I, why would I want? Why would I want to... Be separate unto this God. And why would I want his love? What's so valuable about his love? Notice what Moses says next there in verse 9. He says, know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God. That's why. Because he's God. (laughs) Because it doesn't get any higher. It doesn't get any greater. It doesn't get any better. He says, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay him to his face. And now as he moves on, it gets from good to even better. Watch this in verse 11. As he now gives to them the terms of the covenant, the terms of the contract, He says, thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore, it shall come to pass if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, thy corn and thy wine and thine oil, the increase of thy kine, that's cattle, and the flocks of thy sheep in the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male nor female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and put none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which thou knowest, upon thee, but will lay them upon all that hate thee. And you shall consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee. 
Thine eye shall have no pity upon them, neither shalt thou serve their gods, for that will be a snare unto thee. Now, you say, you know, hey, what gives? Because he talks about an unconditional love back up in verses uh, 6 and 7. But here now, he's talking about a covenant, a contract that they are required to keep. He says, if you keep and do these commandments of this covenant, then then I will also do for you what I have promised to do for you. And I will love you and multiply you and bless you and your cattle and your, you know, the fruit of your womb and, and all of the rest that God gives. Well, listen, as it was to them, they were under the covenant of the law. Their blessing, their continuance, their enjoyment of what God promised them was contingent upon their performance in keeping and in doing all the things that God told them that they needed to keep and to do. You and I are beneficiaries of a better and a greater covenant than that. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. No longer does man's relationship with God stand upon or fall upon the performance of that man to be holy enough or good enough or to keep and do the commandments of God. But we enter into a covenant with God not based upon what we do, but what he's done. Our covenant with him is through the person of Christ. And in Christ, we are beneficiaries of all of what God has provided for us. We're in him. All the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. And so for them, it was contingent upon them. But for us, it's contingent upon Christ. And he was victorious. And so we enjoy the promises of God. We have the promise of God's blessing. You say, well, wait a minute. When I look at my life, I don't fall under the category of showered in his love multiplied, blessed in the fruit of my womb and my land and my corn and my wine and my oil and my cattle and my flocks and my land and and everything. What gives? Well, listen, the covenant that was given to them, again, was based upon a carnal inheritance. They were going to have a land. For you and for me, the inheritance that we receive is spiritual in nature. We are beneficiaries of all that's been provided by God in Christ, spiritually. Now, the good news is that God does these things too. His nature is to give. His nature is to elevate, to bless his people, to give us the things that we need. It's your father's good pleasure, Luke tells us, to give you the kingdom. Well, Jesus told us that. Luke recorded it, you know. And so he's given us these things. Paul wrote in Romans, and he said, He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. How much more shall he not now freely give us all things? And so he does bless us physically and and materially with those things that we need. But that's not where the life is. Life is not in an inheritance or in a possession or in the multiplied flocks and herds and lands, you know. But life is in Christ. And what we have is infinitely greater than what they had because we can experience fellowship with God moment by moment. We have intimacy with him through the power of his spirit. We have access to him 24-7. We have forgiveness of sins instantaneously under the blood of Jesus Christ. It's an infinitely greater and better covenant that we are beneficiaries of. But the blessings attached to it are ours in Christ Jesus. It's good news. 
It's what Moses is declaring to them. It's what we are beneficiaries of through Christ. And so the terms of the covenant laid out that we are a blessed people. And we are blessed, aren't we? It's amazing how we lose sight of the blessing of God because we look at things from simply an outward or physical manner. But we've been blessed, haven't we? In the person of Christ. Well, he goes on to talk about now the rules, or not the rules, but kind of the guidelines for the battle or instructions for the battle that is to come. He he says in verse 17, he says, If you shall say in thine heart, These nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them. But shalt well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and unto all Egypt. The great temptations which thine eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders, and the mighty hand, and the stretched out arm, whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out, so shall the Lord thy God do unto all the people of whom thou art afraid. Moreover, the Lord thy God will send the hornet among them, until they they that are left and hide themselves from thee be destroyed. Thou shalt not be affrighted at them, for the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible or awesome. And the Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee, little and little, or little by little, that you may not consume them all at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon thee. But the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed. And he shall deliver their kings into thine hand, and thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before thee until thou hast destroyed them. Now, we understand at this point that God has prepared territory for them to take. He's promised them a land that he's going to give to them, just like he's prepared territory, spiritually, a land for us to take. And the same exhortations, the same instructions that he gives to them also apply to us. What does he say to them here? Well, first of all, he reminds them that the territory that they are to take is occupied by an enemy. That they have an enemy. There's something that's going to try to restrict them and keep them back from entering into and enjoying all that God has for them. And we have that. We have an enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those things are not going to just lay down and let us go in and enjoy the promises of God. Those things are going to seek to hinder us. They want to destroy us, to cut our feet off and keep us from enjoying what God has has prepared for us. And so the conclusion that we make for them and also for us is that if we want to have and possess the things that God has provided for us in his son, Christ Jesus, then there is a fight. That there's going to be a battle. That the enemy is not going to dispossess himself. That there's something that we have to do, a part that we have to play. I talk to people all the time that come in and they'll talk to me about their struggles, their enemies, their flesh, or the world, or whatever it is that's keeping them back from enjoying the things that God has. 
And so often I'm surprised that, that they just expect that there's just this light switch somewhere up in heaven and that if they can just jump through enough hoops that at some point God's just going to flip that switch and all their problems are going to just disappear and go away. No, sometimes if we want to take territory that has been purchased and provided for us, there's a battle. There's a fight. We have to pick up and do it. But here's the good news. The victory belongs to the Lord. Eight times in these nine verses, from verse 16 all the way down to verse 24, you'll notice the repeated phrase, the Lord thy God. That it's him that's going to drive out the enemy. It's him that's going to give us the victory. It's him that's going to cause us to triumph and to conquer those things and to enjoy what God has for us. But we have to be willing to take up the battle and fight and go in and take the possession, the things that God has, to remove the flesh from its place of occupation in our lives. To remove the influence of the world and what it's doing to subvert us from enjoying Jesus Christ. To resist the devil and not give in to the temptation that he's throwing at us and bombarding us with constantly day by day. And as we do that, the Lord says, I will help you, even if it has to be supernatural in nature. Notice that he says there uh, that he's going to even send the hornet in, in verse 20. You ever seen a hornet? I don't care how tough you are. You could be a hardened soldier. You know, you could have guns and ammunition. You have a hornet that starts flying around your head. What do you do? Ah, you know, you, you run, you know. And God says, I, I will even do that. But notice also what the Lord says here. And I, I love this. It's very freeing for me. In verse 22, he says that he will drive them out little and little. That you cannot push them out all at once, lest the beasts of the field multiply. That God is not going to clear land that you're not able to manage. When I first got saved, you know, just like you, if you're saved here, you know what it's like. There were the big sins. You know, I, I smoked pot and I drank a lot with my friends and I had a foul mouth, you know. And those were the things that, 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 that were right in front of me when I first got saved that I just knew. I mean, the searchlight of God's spirit, the conviction, you know, of the conscience that's been brought to life and the word of God that speaks was right on those things, you know. They got to go. And so there was a fight and some of those things went down easy and some of those things, it was more of a battle, but, but they went. And I thought, all right, yes. I am in, Lord. This is great. I'm possessing the land. But what happened is that as soon as those enemies were conquered, the searchlight shifted and it moved back one row. And after that was done, the pot and the drinking and the swearing, now it, the lying, the overeating, the watching two movies a day, all of a sudden, the searchlight began to shine on those other things. And I thought, well, well, I never thought there was anything really wrong with those things. But now, all of a sudden, I, 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 I'm beginning to feel that, that same pull of conviction, that same pang in my conscience. What's, what's going on? And, and so a new battle was fought. And, and one by one, those things began to fell as, as God gave me victory. But then after those were gone and I thought the battle was over, now there was new things. Spending too much money, ambition, pride. You know, the searchlight began to expand upon other things, and I caught on very quickly, and so have you. Is that this battle that we fight, 
This thing of taking territory away from the enemy and giving it under subjection of Christ that we might live, it's a lifelong process. That from the day that you are born again until the day that you die, you will be taking territory. There will be things for you to take. And God already knows, as he's looked upon your life, he already knows everything that you're ever going to face, every battle that you're ever going to fight. He knows the thing that's going to come on the screen, under the radar, 30 years from now, if the Lord tarries and if you're still alive, in the thing that you'll be fighting. And here's the incredible thing, is that for each one of us, there may be a different number of things that, that, that you have to fight, that you have to take. You know, there might be 50 things that God has ordered for you that you're going to battle and and fight, you know. But that that number is different for each one of us, and the things on that list are different for each one of us. See, for me, a foul mouth, that was right up front there at number one. God, God brought that battle right away, and he gave me victory over that because perhaps the plan that he had for my life, that my mouth would be used for him, perhaps that's why. Maybe it is, maybe it is, and I don't know. But for you, maybe there's something else that's number one and number two, and maybe a foul mouth for you is number 25. And God at some point is going to remove that from your life and he's going to bring the conviction of the spirit upon your life. But, But don't let anybody lay a trip on you because you haven't gotten victory in a certain area yet. God will do it in his time. He'll bring it, uh, you know, into your heart, into your mind, onto the screen at the proper time. But he's going to do it little by little. And he never drives out more in our lives than what we can handle. But what's our mentality to be? Notice with me in verse 25. He says, the graven images of their gods shall you burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it unto thee, lest thou be snared therein, for it is an abomination to the Lord thy God. Neither shalt thou bring an abomination into thy house, lest thou be a cursed thing like it. But thou shalt utterly detest it, and thou shalt utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. And the mentality that you and I are to take is that we're to be in agreement with God concerning what he says about what. Do you understand? The word confess that we use frequently in the faith and that the Bible uses, 1 John 1, 9. It says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess is the word that means to say the same thing. That's what it means to confess, to say the same thing. It means to say the same thing about something that God says about it. And if God says it's an abomination, if God says it's the flesh, if God says it's got to go, then our mentality must be, yes, Lord, amen. Then let it be done. And we're not to compromise with it. We're not to want it or like it. We're to say, Lord, you say it's detestable. Take it out of my life. And he will. So the rules of conquest in chapter 7. As we get into chapter 8 now, he calls them to remember the time that they spent in the wilderness. He, He shifts gears here. Instead of looking forward at what's to come, now he's about to call them to reflect on what has been. They've just spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And he wants them to look back at this time and to consider three things in this chapter. First of all, the reason for that 40 years that they spent in the wilderness. Second of all, what that 40 years was preparing them for. 
And then number three, why that time in the wilderness was absolutely vital. Why the wilderness wanderings were vital. What I call this chapter in my heading as I wrote here in my Bible is the memoirs of the seminary of the Holy Ghost. Memoirs of the seminary of the Holy Ghost. And what we discover right off the bat is that this wilderness time, whether it be for them in that day, or whether it be for us, for you and for me in our relationship with the Lord, a period of wandering in the wilderness is something that's universal. It's something that is experienced by all of God's people in every generation for the same reasons. Notice in verse 1, he says, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Are you noticing a pattern? How many times have the chapters of Deuteronomy begun with these same words? Observe to do that you might go in and live and possess the land and the life that God has for you. And then in verse 2, he says, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness. And what he's telling them, the same thing that he says to us, is that there is a prescribed time in the life of every child of God that we go through what we would call a wilderness experience. A season of drought, of dryness, of darkness, of death, so to speak. In the wilderness, a wandering time, a time of darkness. And we see that it's prescribed, that it's absolutely necessary. And what we discover is that there were some required courses that they had to take. There were some things that they had to understand, some things about God that they needed to have ingrained upon their heart before they could be brought into the fullness of what God had for their life. And that the only way that they could learn those things was to spend some time in the desert, in the wilderness. Now, yes, there were things that were prescribed, mandatory, required courses. There were also many electives. Many things that that they didn't necessarily need, but because they wandered, because they lacked, because they couldn't learn the things that God was teaching, he taught them other things, you know. And it never goes to waste, no matter how long God has you in the desert. Maybe 40 years, maybe for some three, maybe for some 10, who knows? Maybe for some six months if you learn what God has to teach you. But we see that it's prescribed and it's universal. What are the required courses? What is it that they needed? What is it that we need? That God uses the time in the desert to teach us. Well, first of all, humility. Notice, he says, He led thee these 40 years to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep the commandments or not. So the first thing that he talks about that they needed to learn, that God prescribed, designed for them, is that their hearts would become humble. Well, how does this work? How does God teach a man or a woman humility in terms of their relationship with him and the plan that he has for their life? Well, Moses tells us right here, the first thing is that he, first of all, proves you. He tests you. And it says there to know what was in their heart. Now, God didn't need to know what was in their heart. God knew exactly what was in their heart. They needed to know what was in their heart. 
And so God said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you in a time of dryness, a time of dearth, a time of poverty, a time where you will lack the things that you need, even the basic things that you need. And you'll come to a point where you are absolutely destitute, dried out, where there's no hope and you feel like you've been appointed unto death, that there's nothing for you but death. And then I'm going to watch your life after putting the squeeze on you and just see what comes out. One of the old dead saints that wrote lots of books said that Christians are like tea bags. You don't really know what's in them until you put them in hot water. And there's truth in that. And God will do it, is that he'll allow there to be a a drought, a wilderness experience, something to happen to us. And it's in that time that what's really going on inside of us begins to come out. The frustrations, the bitterness, the rebellion, the sin, the things that we will turn to other than the Lord for comfort or for help in our time of need. When do those things come out? They come out in the squeeze They come out when we're in the wilderness, in the desert, in the trial, in that time when we're wondering, God, where are you? You know, that's when those things, someone said one time, the reason that I'm like this is because of what happened to me at such and such a point in my life. I'm like this because I was fired or because I was dumped or or because I was abandoned as a child or because I was abused. and, And there's a whole list of things. That's why I'm like this. No, 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 no. You're not like that because those things happen to you. You're like that. And those things revealed that that was in you. That's what trials do. That's what difficulties produce in our life. They don't produce the the attitude. That's in there. That's automatic. The trials reveal the things that's there. So God says, I'm going to humble you, first of all, by proving you to show you what's in your heart. So the first part of humility is to see what's in our heart. It's called figuring out or finding out who we are. And we see that all throughout the Bible. We see it in the life of Moses for 40 years wandering in the desert. We see it in Peter, the great apostle who denied Christ three times. Didn't know that was in his heart to do that, but he learned it, didn't he? We see it in Paul who went into Damascus and preached powerfully, but brought a death sentence upon himself. And then he agitated the churches in Jerusalem to the point of where at the end of Acts chapter 9, the apostles had to take Paul aside and say, hey, listen, go home. Go to Tarsus. Get out of here. And it says that then the churches had rest. (laughs) See, there's a desert. Why? Because we need to discover ourselves. We need to see what's in our heart. But listen, that's only the first part of this thing called humility. What's the other part? Here's the other part. Listen. The children of Israel rebelled at every turn, every point of that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They murmured against the Lord. They complained. They sought to overthrow the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They murmured at every step. They turned, they rebelled. They failed God every day during that 40 years. But God never abandoned them. That even though they made every mistake they could possibly make, God never said, that's it. I'm done, and just obliterated them and said, I'm starting over. He never did it. Why? Because that's what God wanted them to realize. That's what he wants us to realize. When I think about my own life, my own Christian walk, and I think about all the mistakes that I've made, the errors, the blunders, you know, 
the sins, the things that the, the times that I've fallen, and I've thought, God, there's absolutely no way that you could ever use me or even look at me. God never ever turned his back and said, Well, I'm done with you. You're, that's it. You're finished. You're out of here. And you know what happens when you realize that kind of faithfulness and that kind of love? It humbles you. It's very difficult to sin against that kind of love because you realize that he's not going to give up on me. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me, even though at every point I might rebel when I'm pressured. And so God said the wilderness was necessary because you needed to see what was in you. You needed to understand that, and then you needed to know who I am. So humility was vital for them in the wilderness. Also, they needed to learn God's faithfulness. Verse 3, he says, And he humbled thee, and he suffered thee to hunger, and he fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. In the time of their greatest need, when they lacked even for the basic necessities of life, even then God provided for them supernaturally and miraculously. He rained bread from heaven. The writer of Hebrews says that man did eat angels' food and that God provided for them and they needed to learn that because what God is about to do is he's about to move this people from a place of extreme poverty to extreme wealth. And he knows the danger that exists in those kind of conditions for them to begin to think that their wealth is the byproduct of something that they have done. And God wants them to understand, no, man does not live simply by bread only, that is, the physical means of things. But man survives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not the words, we don't eat the words, that's not the point. The point is that it's the word of God's faithfulness the word of God's promise to always sustain, to always provide, to always keep, that that's what keeps us alive, not our abilities or what we have or what we earn or what we keep. They needed to understand that. We'll see why in a moment. He says, Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. And you shall also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth The third thing that they had to learn was his commitment as a father to his children. The word chasten means the total preparation and upbringing of a child. That's what that word means, the total training of a child in every way. And he says, you need to understand and consider that I am the one that has raised you and I am the one that will be faithful to you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. But what do we get on the other side of the seminary of the Holy Ghost? He tells us in verse 7. He says, For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive, and honey, A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. It's going to be abundant. And in every way that you can enjoy 
the satisfaction of life. I'm going to open the windows of heaven upon you, and you are going to live, God is saying to his people. And the same thing is true for you and for me. That as we come through the wilderness wanderings of God's teaching us who he is and who we are, the life that he's prepared, the things and the plans that he has for us are things that we'll enjoy forever in an abundance that we could never uh, begin to compare with. Well, he goes on, he's going to, in verses 10 through 20, give them a, a, a warning about it, but we're out of time, so we'll pick up there next week as we uh, continue our, our, our trek through Deuteronomy, and that will work out just fine because he carries on the same train of thought into chapter 9. But tonight, for some of us, we find ourselves in that wilderness, don't we? You know, it's important for God, the worship team can come, it's important for God to take us through deep waters. Sometimes things have to get so bad that there's absolutely no help or no comfort in anything or anyone or any teaching or any book or any pastor or any spouse or friend or relationship that there's nothing that can bring us to the point of, of satisfaction or even knowing how God is going to bring us through the trials that we're in. Do you know that's vital? Because we have to come to a point where we realize the only answer for our lives is God. So that you might be there tonight. That might be you, and you're in a place in your life where you say, there's absolutely no hope in this situation. Listen, you're in a good place. Because you're in a place where you can call upon the Lord and see his deliverance. And the work that he does in your heart in that time, no one can ever take it from you. Sometimes we wish we could learn the lessons of God's school in a textbook. You know, for years I've taught the Bible now, and I've thought, well, Lord, I don't really have to go through any of these things because I teach them. I know what they all are, you know. And I wish it worked like that, but it doesn't. Because you can't learn these lessons in your head. You've got to learn them in your heart. And the only way to learn them in your heart is to go through the valley of the shadow of death. To go through the valley of Baca, as the psalmist declares, you know, the valley of weeping, you know. But in that valley, in that place is where the Lord meets with us. And the things, the cords of faith and love and hope that he bursts within our hearts in those places can't be replaced by anything else. Some of us are not in the wilderness. We've come through. For you and for me, it's a warning. It's a warning. Be careful. Because it's easy for the heart to become lifted up. To begin to think, well, I'm, I did that now, and now look what I enjoy, and I don't really need the Lord anymore. He got me through, and beware, beware. But the Lord's with us. He's for us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. We'll pick up there next week. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the word of God tonight. We ask that you would write these things upon our hearts that you would give us ears to hear what you would speak to us personally, and that you would bring us through, Lord. We thank you for the exhortations that we heard tonight, for the truth about your love, for your power and your faithfulness, and your commitment as a father. And so we ask you, Lord, to just work in our lives. I pray for those tonight, Lord, that need your comfort, that you would touch them and bless them in a way that only your spirit can. And we thank you so much for this word, Lord and for your commitment to us. I pray that you would lead us on our way as we go, that we would walk in your strength, that we would employ your promises in your power, and that we would move from glory to glory 
as we await your return. Let us shine as lights in this dark world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together. Mm -hmm.